Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Mafer Cheng. Mafer is the founder of Centro Enigma, an autism center in Ecuador. The Global Autism Project has been partnered with Centro Enigma since 2018. We've sent four skill core teams to collaborate with their teachers and provide training in applied behavior analysis, or for short, ABA. Since opening her first center in Guayaquil in 2015, Mafer has expanded her reach to two other cities, San Borondon and Manta. She had plans to open a fourth center in Puerto Viejo this April, however, that has been put on hold due to the coronavirus pandemic. When this episode was recorded on March 20th, Ecuador was on their fifth day of mandated lockdown. Mafer had just closed Centro Enigma a few days before and was transitioning to offer online services for families. Now, seven weeks later, Guayaquil is known as the Little Wuhan of Latin America, with over 20,000 cases of COVID-19. This has impacted the center tremendously. The staff at Centro Enigma are currently volunteering their time to make sure kids and families continue to have access to support. Mafer created a video to share the struggles they're facing, and I'll share a link to it in the show notes. In this episode, Mafer explains what services are available for children with autism in Ecuador. It's not easy for parents to differentiate between services that are evidence-based and those that are not. Mafer also talks about some of the myths surrounding ABA in her community. We discuss how her journey to become a certified behavior analyst has been affected by the international process changes made by the Behavior Analyst Certification Board, or for short, BACB. Mafer describes some of the breakthroughs she's had during the early years of developing Centro Enigma, including learning how to motivate and retain therapists. Each year, on World Autism Awareness Day, the staff at Centro Enigma hold big events in different cities across Ecuador. Mafer recounts how their efforts to spread awareness have grown over the years. They started with a small group of five students and later expanded to a long list of families who want to participate. She expresses the heartfelt joy she's experienced from hearing parents speak differently about their children's autism. Mafer empowers parents to be involved in their children's therapy from day one. This has prepared families to jump in and work with their kids at home now as their centers are closed during quarantine. Mafer's determination to continue to provide quality services to the families of Centro Enigma is truly inspiring. In this episode, discover what's possible when parents mobilize to build a community of ambassadors. You can find links to learn more about Mafer and Centro Enigma on our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. Now, I present you, Mafer Cheng. Welcome to the show, Mafer. We're excited to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Before we discuss the work you do, could you explain the attitudes and understanding of autism in Ecuador? Of course, in Ecuador, autism is still a myth. Kids are getting diagnosed mostly at four or five years old, and the earliest a three-year-old can be diagnosed. And I can talk from the experience of um, the children that usually come to the center. 
And either parents think that going to school will be like, not the cure, but will be the solution for the kids because in school they will see other kids and they will imitate or copy and then they will learn from other kids. Or I have had parents who have just kept them home and wait until a period of time to take them to school. And when they take them to school, it's too late. They won't get an intake because of their lack of abilities. So parents, not a lot of parents know about autism. Most of the parents think it's a, like it's a sickness or it's like the worst thing in the world or that there will be a cure. Um, like may, maybe if I came into therapy six months, then I will be, you guys will cure them. So there's still a lot of myths about that. Mm-hmm. Do people in the community see children with autism on the streets and in supermarkets? Are they walking around? I can tell you from the experience of my parents, like the parents that work with us, usually they don't take them out. <laughs> and they try to keep them at home and the parents will go out and do their shopping or the errands that they have to do. From all the patterns that we've had when we would do the interviews, most of the things that they say is like, no, I'll just go to the supermarket by myself. <laughs> so as your answers, I will say no. You won't see a lot of kids with autism outside. So they're diagnosed at about four or five years old, you said? Yes. Okay. And that's about the time they, they start to go to school. So are parents realizing before that that there's something different about their child? Yes, they do realize before that, especially when they have a first child and the child who's been diagnosed is the second child. This year, I can say this past year, the child's under 19, I can say that we have gotten early diagnosed, at least in our center. Last year, it was the first time that we had children ages a year and a half or two years old. But 2018, before that, we've had children four, five, six, three years old the earliest. So I think there's, we probably are doing something great that kids are getting diagnosed earlier. Yeah, there's more of an awareness in your community. Yes, yes, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So from the point of diagnosis, what options do the parents have? First of all, the process of diagnosis is not the right one in Ecuador. Some kids go to certain psychologists and the psychologists will look at the kid and say, <laughs> very rudely, it's like your child has autism. And other parents go to the pediatrician, then they go to the neurologist, uh, pediatrician, then they do the a language test, an OT test, I mean the speech test. And then they come to us to do the ADOS. And with the recopilation of all those documents, they go back to the neurologist and then he confirms the diagnosis. But very little parents do that process because obviously it's more expensive. And most of the parents go to the first psychology and the professional care still, they should still need to learn how the, is the process of diagnosis. So from the point of view of diagnosis, that's the first point of view that we try to do awareness on the professional and how to deliver the parents because parents pretty much have no idea where to go. And pediatricians, they don't do the MCHAT at all. I haven't seen a pediatrician who will do the MCHAT at least to give some kind of follow-up on the child. Mm-hmm. So after the diagnosis... Does the pediatrician recommend specific services, like specific therapies? Well, before, they will say they will go to school or take them to a speech therapist. 
in the past two years, actually, we've had a small group of pediatricians who are actually sending them for ADA services. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yes. So now we have some pediatricians and some general doctors who are actually recommending ADA services. And at least in our city, we have about five neurologists who are recommending ADA services. And how many centers are providing ABA services? Right now, there's two centers providing ABA services in the two different cities. I am in Guayaquil, and there's another center in another city, like 15 minutes from here. Okay. Are there also centers who provide autism services that are not evidence-based? Oh, yes, many centers. Actually, more like autism services, it's more like speech therapy or OT therapy or psychology therapy. It's all separate. And they probably take like one session a week or two sessions a week of 45 minutes. Okay. And Moffer, how did you begin working with this population? So Sense Enigma began, or before it became Sense Enigma, I began working with this population in 2014, 2013 to 2014. And in 2014, I started seeing the needs of the ADA services in Ecuador. And I'll tell you the story of how I began the center. Mm-hmm. My mother lives in a building because I used to live in the States. I came back to Ecuador after I did my master's degree. And my mom, desperately of me getting a job, she would say, tell and everybody, like, oh, she's master's program in ABA or, you know, applied behavior analysis. She can work with your kid. So she presented to me this little boy, a five-year-old boy. And the mom was actually taking him to the neurologist pediatric. And I met her and I was like, well, I can just like go with your kid and play with him for like, you know, every day for one hour. No charge because, you know, I still didn't have a job. I needed to do something. And so I adjust to the city and everything. And I started working with a kid. And probably three months later, she had the follow-up of the appointment on the doctor's. And the doctor wanted to actually give him medication. And three months later, he was like, wait, what happened to the boy? Because I don't think he needs the medication anymore. And then she told him the story of, I met this girl and she lived near my apartment. And so I met him and I met the doctor. And then the doctor said, what do you do? And I said, I do ABA services. I'm not installed 100% in Ecuador, but I explained him the story of this little boy. And he was very grateful. And he's like, I can't believe we have ABA services in Ecuador. I've heard so much about it, international seminars. And since then, he started referring me kids. And I didn't even have a center. So I, that's when I saw the need of building Centro Enigma. And so did you study a related degree in college? How did you really get introduced to ABA in the first place? So on the, my bachelor's program, no. On my bachelor's, I only did human development, and I did do special education and a little bit of psychology to treat more like violence at home. And since I was an au pair nanny, I used to be a nanny, and the house that I had to work at, they I saw the entire process of the little boy of a two-year-old and how he got diagnosed, and I saw all his process and how they try the Sunrise program and how they try speech-language therapy and how they try OT. And where was this? That was in Andover, Massachusetts. Okay. That was when I was finishing my bachelor's program. 
And then like, one day he just ran away from the house and he disappeared for like three hours. <laughs> Mm. And the entire police looked for him, and uh, you know, people recommended to the mom to do ABA services. And I was like, "Oh, what's that?" And I started like looking up because they wanted me to be part of the Sunrise program. But when I read about it, I just wasn't convinced about it. And once I read about ABA, I just started looking for universities, and that's when I when I found Siemens College. Mm-hmm. Can you just for background explain what Sunrise is so people know? Well, from the little bit that I remember when I read at that point, at that time, the Sunrise program, the most of the things that we did or the mom did with this little boy, he has to be in a room with no stimuli and he needed to have one person who be with him in that room the whole day and they will change turns. So it'll be like one person for like five hours and then another person. And then if the student will be spinning or will be flapping, you will copy the kid. And then by copying the kid, little by little, the kid will have a connection with you and then you will be able to teach him something. But I wasn't very convinced because there was no evidence base, number one. And number two, I just, it didn't like click with me of like having this little boy in a room like from eight o'clock until eight o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. So you stayed in Massachusetts. Did you do your master's degree coursework there too? Yep. Yep. So I did my bachelor's program in Massachusetts and then I did my master's degree in Siemens College in ABA services. Then I went through the process of the taking the exam. But then I had my two girls during that process, like my halfway master's degree and doing the exam. And as soon as I graduated, I took the exam three times. And fortunately, I, by a few points, I couldn't pass it. And then I decided to just return to Ecuador with my girls and just work with kids. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you about the recent announcement from the BACB, the Board for Behavior Analysts. On December 31st last year, they announced that they will no longer accept certification applications from individuals who reside outside of the U.S. and Canada. How has this change affected you? Well, it affected me a lot because last year, the entire year, I started taking online courses in the U.S. to keep up with the next, next task list because I graduated with a task list number four, number three, and then I had to do the, all the credits to keep up to the number four. And so that means I spent a lot of money, of course, a lot of resources. And now that I want to apply for the exam, obviously I'm not able to. And I have like 25 different therapies under my supervision that not having the exam is just going against the ethics of what I learn or study in the two years of my master's program. Mm -hmm. And why do you think it's important to have this certification where you are right now in Ecuador? Well, first, we need to certify more people. There's only one BCBA, the one from the other center that provides ABA services. And then there's me, which thanks to a Level Autism Project, we keep the supervision with other BCBAs. But now that the field is growing in Ecuador and we see the need of children with autism to receive ABA services, a lot of my therapists want to do the master's program. But then they back up because they won't be able to be certified. So obviously it's like a cycle if we don't get certified we won't be able to give services and there are a lot of kids who need it. Mm -hmm. 
Would you be able to at least provide services without the certification, just as you are now? Well, in Ecuador, I am. We are providing services without the certification. What I do is I do a lot of competency courses. And that's why we have the partnership with Global Autism Project. That was one of the many reasons that we actually partnership. For the ethics part of like, okay, I need someone to supervise me, someone who has a resource of BCBA. So this is how we keep in track of the ethics part of being supervised by someone who has a BCBA certification. But the point is if the, if the board keeps that of not being able to certify people outside the country, there'll be a lot of barriers on the renewing services and to other children. Also, for the insurance purposes, I mean, we have been able to get in contact with two insurances who covers pretty much 70% of the services of the children because we are supervised by a BCBA outside the country. So if we were able to be certified, we'll probably have more insurance companies who can actually cover the services. That's a good point. Do all families have insurance? No, no. There are three international insurances in Ecuador that are able to cover services. Mm-hmm. So if families don't have insurance, do they just pay out of pocket? Yes, they have to pay out of pocket. And I can imagine that as a parent, if I'm looking for services in Guayaquil and I'm comparing ABA centers, one that has a certified clinician on staff gives it a little bit more credibility. Yes. And so... I mean, this is a big problem, not just in Ecuador, but around the, the rest world. of the countries. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this puts our science at risk of losing its validation in the community. Yeah. Yeah, because I've seen pretty much people who do one course or two courses on ABA and they are posting that they are doing ABA services. And so how do you differentiate the services that you're getting? And of course, when you see the videos of the kid doing the services, you can see that it's not being objective, it's not being generalized, it's not, I don't know if it's not being effective because I can't see the process of the progress of the kid, but you can see a lot of things that are not right. And of course, in prices, the parent will be like, well, she's doing AB services, so it's cheaper, so I'll go here. And that person's probably not validated and the credibility and the certification takes a lot of part in that. So the only thing that we do as a center is we validate with our partnership. Okay. And when did you open Centro Enigma? So after 2014, the whole story that I told you, Mm -hmm. we opened Centro Enigma on August 3rd of 2015. Wow, that's fast. So we're going to turn five years this year. We're going to be five. Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and how many students do you serve? Right now we are at 32 students and it's cyclical because we put objectives, uh, yearly objectives in every semester so the kids can go into school. So the first three years were pretty hard because of people didn't know what ABA services were. And after the third year, even though the kids will go to school, they are still keeping the services with us in the afternoon. The first three years, the parents will like do the services, the child will get adjusted, you know, learn some language, and then they'll be able to go to school. And then they'll probably say, like, we don't need ABA services because they didn't understand a lot. 
But I can say the past two years, we've been able to like keep track of all the parents and the parents are still with us. They have a lot of fidelity with us. <laughs> and even though the kid, even though the kid will start with 25 hours a week or 30 hours a week, now they're reduced to even four hours a week, but they're in school and the parents are still doing follow-up with us. But that's just like a year and a half, two years from like the past two years. Do you do school services and in-home also? We do some in-home depending on the cases, but mostly it's in the center. In the center. Got it. So you said some challenges were just spreading awareness of ABA. Mm -hmm. Did you have any breakthrough moments along the way? Yes. (laughs) Well, the first year we had a lot of parents that even though we did conference and we tried to explain what ABA services was, a lot of parents will say, they will say myths about ABA. They will say that it's not good, that it's going to be a robot, and that you stick them in a chair. So there were a lot of myths about ABA services. So the first challenge that we have in the first year, we have one of the moms put against the whole center, all the parents, with all those myths. And we have a lot of kids who left the services. Mm-hmm. Um, challenging on, on autism awareness, we've had the second year because every April 2nd, we do a big event to mm-hmm. do autism awareness. I'm in charge of a big event. But that second year, we didn't have anyone to help us. Um, no one wanted to be part of it. So we had to pay off out of pocket in order to do some awareness. And that same year, we had a problem with our therapist, our staff. We, we had around seven or eight staff in the center, and five of them resigned that same afternoon. So that was one of my like, my big breakthroughs because I just cried. Just, I, need, I still needed to do the services the next day. So we tried to manage. Why did they quit? But first of all, we were starting the, you know, it was all the beginning of the center. So they quit for many reasons. They look for better job offers. Also, ABA services is not something that they were very convinced about, but mostly it's because of the financial part. You know, if, if when you're starting and you have parents who are not believing or knowing what they're doing, you what we did was like charge very little so the parents can still try it and see that it works. So obviously, it's like you have pretty much most of the time that the staff is there, they like they get paid, but it's a lot of like voluntary time too. And obviously, they want a better financial status, so they change jobs. How many staff members do you have now? Right now, we have around twenty-five. Wow! Yeah, we have a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. What have you learned over the years about how to retain staff? Well, for me as a director, I have learned to get closer to them because I'm usually not very empathic. (laughs) So pretty much I'm like, just, okay, let's do this, let's do that. And then I don't get closer enough to maybe make sure like how are they feeling on that specific day or communicating things as a group. So I had to work a lot or learn a lot about those skills with one of my coordinators, which she's like very empathic and I have learned from her. She's like, Mom, for, even though I do it with my kids, it's really hard to, for me to do it with my staff. And she's like, you have to tell your staff good job. You have to tell them what they did good today. 
So that's one of the hardest things that's been for me. And uh, that has helped me retain my staff and to work a lot of like how they're feeling on their on their inner motivation and keep them the same way as we're keeping our kids motivated every day and change their reinforces. I'm doing it with my staff. Yeah, it's hard to be on the front lines, to be that direct therapist. It, yeah. It can feel very overwhelming and it's easy to get burnt out. Mm-hmm. Yes, because I mean, at the beginning, I was just a therapist and I started like, guiding the first two staff, the first one or two staff. But then as the time went by, we started growing and it's like, how do you take financial? How do you charge the parents? How do you do a bill on the parents? And then obviously at the end of the year, I'm like, okay, I didn't know all this about taxes and how to fill these forms. And so it's, it's a stressful. So like to be education, like an education skill and then need to learn all of the administrative stuff. Oh yeah. And to be a clinician and business owner at the same time. Yeah, one of the hardest things is to delegate. <laughs> but I've learned with the Global Autism Project to delegate. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that you have annual events for World Autism Awareness Day on April 2nd. What are some of the events that you do? We started with, obviously, the Lighting Up Blue. Uh, we started Lighting Up Blue, the center. But then the next year, I told the staff, okay, let's do something a little bigger. And we started connecting with, we started, like, you know, knocking on doors and seeing who will, like, join, the, join us on this. And we decided to do a gallery, a photography gallery with our kids. Oh, cool. With a little phrase. So, but the first one that we did, we only had, like, six students, one or two, five students who had to participate. Because, you know, the parents have to sign and the, the child will be, like, on a big gallery. Everyone will be looking at your kid. Most of the parents who participate, they only let give them permission to do hands or back or side, not the whole face. And then we decided uh, we had the, some in the government in the city to turn up, like, um, it's not a roller coaster. It's, it's round. It's like the one in Canada. A Ferris wheel? Yeah, a Ferris mm-hmm. wheel, all blue. So we were able to turn the Ferris wheel all blue. That's really cool. And then that year, I did a lot of workshops for me. I, I just got be able, I just asked for the government to give me a big space. And I just will go on the Tuesday or during the week, we'll start posting, okay, we'll do a workshop on autism, the early signs of autism, um, inclusion, what's ABA. So we did a lot of workshops like that. And they were free for the parents. Then the next year, we wanted to do a little, something a little bigger. And <laughs> we were surprised that the five parents who participated last year, they didn't want to do just hands. They, that they were like proud and let the whole, let us put, do the photography of the entire front of the child. And they still, they will do a little writing script of, about the, their child. And, and we were able to light up other part of the city and then the third year and we actually had like a list of parents who wanted to participate on the gallery but we didn't have enough yes we had actually we took about 25 students from the center and outside the center and we had to keep students out because we couldn't post everyone in in the gallery 
And that one, which it was nice because that touched my heart because that's when you can tell that the parents are not ashamed. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, yes, I want everyone to know about autism. And I don't care if my child will be fun taking the picture. Like they were very proud and parents who have never taken services with us, they wanted us to take the picture. And then that was the first time a photographer actually donated his time and his, you know, his gift of taking photographies because the other years we had to pay. And and this that third year we were able to light up three cities. Wow. So really just like spreading across Ecuador. Yes. So that time we had to like do a lot of like magic to be able to spread my stuff in three different cities. And at, at the same time we were able to light up blue and you know the gallery will be there and the parents and and then all April I had to like travel around the three cities to do the free workshop. And well this year we were also gonna light up we're gonna light up the three cities, but unfortunately with our international breakthrough of coronavirus, um we're trying to see what can we do with for parents and for the awareness of April. But that was the it was it went good from like no one wanted to take the picture of your kid and then so like everyone wants to be part of the movement. Yeah, that's very inspiring. How you've spread awareness over even just the last three years or four years is a reflection of the great work that you're doing. If parents were not seeing progress in their kids at your center, they wouldn't be spreading the words to their friends or their family or other people who they think might need services too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also for parents in Centro Enigma, we do monthly workshops for them. So we schedule a meeting with all the parents. Uh, 75% of attendance has to be. <laughs> and we just talk about different things. So one month we talk about what is autism, another month like the early time. So, so basically that we cover all the different topics until the end of the year that we cover more of like the session itself. But most of our parents, by the end of the year, they're very empowered of what is autism, how do I communicate with other families, how do I tell another person that maybe you should make your child check up with a doctor. So for the entire year, we try to work a lot with our parents to get be able to, like, they know the information and what are the resources and that can give them information, the right information. We also teach them to, like, read research actually research that can give them information about autism and services. Mm -hmm. And that has helped a lot on our parents. And in addition of that, on our contract with parents, we make them, I mean, at the beginning, if they make them, but then they like come in with no problem. They actually want, they want to come in, but we actually put in the contract for them to observe the session and be part of the session once a week. So basically to be involved in the entire process of their child. And that's when you start seeing like parents who, new parents are not very convinced by after three months or four months later, you can hear the parents say, oh, he did it in three seconds or he did it in five seconds. No, that man wasn't complete. And you can hear them talking about autism and talking about their child. And they don't even talk about autism. They talk mostly about, oh, my child can't do that yet, but he will be able to later because it's not on that objective. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. They've transformed the way they even view autism and the potential of their children. 
Yes, so that that helped a lot. That helped a lot on our process of autism awareness too. Mm-hmm. Having those parents be empowered of what they do and who their child is. Mm-hmm. I want to switch gears to talk about how the coronavirus has impacted the services you offer, and I think this is a good segue because you're describing how you get parents involved from the beginning. So now they have buy-in, and that has maybe made it easier to switch to an online way of doing therapy now. Mm-hmm. But first, before we get into that, I just want to give the listeners some context. We're recording this episode on March 20th, and by the time this gets released, it might be mid-April. And you know, these days, things change so quickly, so I just wanted to put that out there. I live in Spain, and today is the eighth day that we've been on mandated lockdown. So could you just give us a description of what the current situation is in Ecuador? Well, this is the fifth day that we're on mandated lockdown, too. Um, The only thing that can be open in the streets is supermarkets and pharmacies. And they have a strict laws for what place can go out which days and and so what time. Um, and I think that uh, the laws are going to be getting stricter and stricter because cases are growing very fast in Ecuador. And yesterday we only had 199. Today we have 347 cases of coronavirus. And most of the cases are in my city, pretty much, or my province. So one of the things that we had to do on Monday before the actual lockdown, we try to do home services. I know the difficulty of the staff of like taking buses or taking taxis. So I just contract one person and between one person and my car, which are like take the staff to the different houses around the city. So to make sure everyone will get services and then pick them up and win the center. Obviously the parents are, were worried because they don't know the background of the therapies, who they were contact or. So a lot of parents have started canceling services, mostly to prevent the coronavirus. So Monday afternoon, I had to take the decision of closing the center, all the centers, because we have three centers. And we were actually going to open now in the first week of April. We were, we had to open one center in a more rural place where we have a waiting list of kids to receive services. So that news was disappointed for the parents, for the staff. They're worried about their jobs. And the parents are worried about the progress of their kids. And obviously, I'm the mom of everyone, so I'm worried about everyone, the staff and the kids. Mm-hmm. That must have been a really hard decision. Yes, yes, because it was either doing home services, but I knew at some point the government was going to dictate to close everything. And literally, that happened that same night that we decided to close services. Mm-hmm. So you were already thinking proactively of how you can continue to support the families. Yeah, Tuesday morning, we were in a meeting with my coordinators. We have three coordinators in each city. And we were talking about how can we help? Because parents will be texting me and they're, you know, it was just Tuesday before the lockdown and parents were texting already at 11 a.m. and say, my kid is already steaming and he stopped doing that. And, you know, how parents are, they get worried and they're like, that's because of the services. How am I going to do now? And, you know, I don't know what to do with my children. And I have to take care of my other other daughter and then also my child with autism. So in that meeting with my coordinators, we decided to try online supervision. We said, well, the parents have to watch the therapy. 
is at least twice a month, and they go to monthly meetings for reports. They go to all the workshops, so now let's, they're going to have to do it. So we texted the parents to see who wanted to do it, and I was very surprised because I didn't know a lot of people wanted it. I was very surprised that pretty much 60% of our parents wanted to do the online services. Mm-hmm. Okay. And why not the other 40? Because the other 40 is pretty much bigger kids that have really good skills, playing skills, speech skills. So parents only needed like a routine and that's it. But the little ones were, is the other 60%. Um, so all parents say yes. So we started doing uh, schedules and we started that three days ago. And the first day was hard because the kids, are not getting used to the parents telling them what to do and the parents get nervous. But yesterday and today, we even saw, we even had to put new objectives on the kids program because they were mastering things. Wow. And who is the best motivator and than anything else and parents, I mean. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah. there's no comparison. They just want their parents' attention. Yeah, they just want their parents' attention, their tickles, and their songs, and especially the little ones. And we were very surprised. Like today, the last one, the last meetings were today, this morning, and we were very surprised that kids for the first time was mending a like, car and chocolate, and the parents like, he's never done that. And we only do it for one hour for each kid because I have to all the kids for now. And until I... Until I I just assigned it to the coordinators to do it on their own. And right now they're only taking data on manning for the little ones. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's how we're trying to like keep up the supervision. So if one the one day I meet with a kid from Guayaquil, then the next day I meet with a kid from another city that's called Manta. But the kids from Guayaquil, the parents have to do still services on that day that I'm not meeting and they have to send us small videos of them doing the session. Wonderful. Because you're still able to encourage the parents to continue working with their kids. I can't imagine right now. Parents who are maybe already stressed out about this situation that we're all in, who are then also worrying about their kids regressing and going back to old behaviors or maybe new challenging behaviors coming up. So trying to manage that and stay sane among everything. Yeah. And and adding to that the financial because everything is closed and most of my parents have their own business. And when they're talking to me, they say, I'm offer, I'm like in this position of not getting any income right now because everything's closed. I still need to do services with my kids and I have to support my own business. I have to, as you say, I have to maintain the health of my entire family so like no one can go out. And then I have other kids and my child that had autism. I was very curious that one of the moms, I was talking to her two days ago, and she actually did an analogy of like, well, now everyone can see what our kids' life is like of social isolation. Mm, interesting. And she was like, maybe we should talk about that in April 2nd or in April because all this thing of coronavirus. And she was just thinking about her kid. Well, now everyone can feel and see what social isolation can be for my kid. Yeah, the social skills part is so important. Kids who are not around other kids to learn from, that can be really challenging. 
Yeah, and and parents from typical children can see how their child can be frustrated because they don't have that contact. Yeah. So I, I thought that was very interesting that what she told me. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder, would it be possible for you to hold a support group for parents online? Yes, we haven't tried it, but we are actually yesterday I was talking to the staff, we were talking about like, okay, now let's think about the parents and how can we help them? What can we do right now? Because, I mean, all the families are in different situations. There are families who have the possibilities, some like financial possibilities, and, and other families that even though they have a child with autism and even though they have other kids in the house, they don't have the financial possibilities. So their head, obviously, is more on like, how do I feed my family on like my kid regressing? So yes, we were not thinking about specifically a support group, but just we were thinking about like, what else can we do for the parents? Yeah, as for most of us these days, needing to feel that you're not alone is so important that we're all going through this together. Mm -hmm. So how are your staff handling it? Um, they're worried about their jobs <laughs> mm -hmm. a lot. And I'm worried too about their jobs because, you know, if parents uh, can cancel services or can get services, obviously uh, there's going to be a big decision of seeing what's going to happen with the staff. And we don't know how long it is going to be. But for right now, the staff, I have assigned them courses and I have assigned them things to do, like reading some articles and doing videos of different teaching procedures so we can uh, put it up on platforms or videos or YouTube so we can use it for future staff training. So that's how I'm holding them right now for these next two weeks. But basically when we had to talk to them on Monday, all of them, they were very disappointed, sad, confused, um, worried. Right, and that puts some pressure on you as the director to try and hold everyone together. So I admire you for your strength that you're keeping. I tell them we are going to go through all this. So the only thing will be fine. Yeah. So we're going to have to wrap up here soon, Mafer, but I just want to close with one more question. Do you have any advice for parents of children with autism who may be struggling during this time of uncertainty? For this moment that we're actually right now, mm -hmm. I'm not an expert on that, but <laughs> right now the advice that I tell my parents is that to not feel down about what's happening right now and to see the little steps that they can do with their kids at home. And even though it's like a very, very tiny thing, it can be a positive thing. So maybe try to look up things that they can work out as a family and go through as a family. And this is a good way of getting to actually know your kid because we live in a world that we run around so much, we work so much, that uh, I have seen how parents tell me in every session, online session, I didn't know he liked X, Y, and Z. I didn't know he smiled like this. I didn't know he would point like that. Or I didn't know he had this smile with his eyes. And I was like, inside of me I was like yes I see that every day but um, it's a good way of like them to first to understand their child not it's not necessarily understanding autism it's just getting to know your child and from that on there will be a lot of good things that they can come up with that's great advice 
<laughs> yeah, keeping calm and looking for the small progress and the little steps. Yes. And also the fact that you can jump into this online training with parents pretty smoothly considering the abrupt yes. change. It just also shows how you've built really good rapport with these families. And through enrolling them in parent training from an early stage in their treatment plan, it shows that they've already been bought in. Yes. I'm very surprised. I told my parents, you're very proud of you guys because I didn't know it was going to be so smoothly. Mm-hmm. Well, Mafer, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Please continue your amazing work. Your story is truly inspiring. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sending you and your staff and your families strength as we all try our best to cope with what's happening around the world. Mm-hmm. Just keep safe. Thank you, Mafer. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. I hope you found inspiration in hearing Mafer's story. I loved her excitement as she described the success of their events on World Autism Awareness Day, especially the part about parents not being ashamed of their children's autism. This might offer hope to some parents and professionals who live in places where autism is not yet clearly understood. In the United States, it took a movement of parents in the 1970s to really bring autism awareness to the public. It was also moving to hear that parents at Centro Enigma are getting to know their children better from working with them at home. This has undeniably been challenging for all of us to transition to this different way of living. I hope in hearing Moffer's advice, other parents who may be worried about their children regressing will continue to look for teaching opportunities throughout the day and even find small achievements to celebrate. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. Thanks for listening. Take care. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, You'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.